Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. This is Fundamentally Mormon. Today we're going to be reading Chapter 8 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 64 through 75. The title of this chapter is The Life of Moses. The reader program is 24 minutes long, but I think we're just going to do what I did on the last two programs, which is listen to the reader program, and then as I have commentary, I will pause it and just talk about whatever it is that I have on my mind. The guest call-in number is 917-889. 8827 that's 9178898827 if you call during the reading that's fine um but i will i will take you into the call screening room and you can ask your questions or comments there um and then if you just want to listen on the line then that's fine too but there are only 10 lines available now. I, I guess that's what I've been told. So anyway, I guess we'll just get into this. This is the life of Moses, chapter 8 of Polygamy in the Bible. Um, also, in the reader, in the description of the podcast, um, there will be a link to where you can read this chapter for free online at the tumblr.com forward slash fundamentally mormon I'll also have a link to where you can find the book to read it for yourself and I'll have a link for other books that are pretty good books of restoration theology so let's get into this this is the life of Moses chapter 8 of polygamy in the bible the life of Moses Chapter 8 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 64 to 75. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. Acts 7:35. The name of Moses appears in the Bible nearly 800 times. He stands out as the most popular man of God in the pre-Christian era. The miracles, writings and history of this man are second only to Christ. In fact, his life was considered to be a type to represent the promised Messiah who was to come. His life is interwoven with almost every conceivable experience that could confront man. 
he witnessed many great miracles. He was a candidate to be the greatest king on earth, yet he knew poverty on the plains of Midian. He became the leader of the greatest exodus ever recorded in history, yet he also traveled alone in the desert. He knew poverty and riches, popularity and loneliness. He lived in conflict with one of the most wicked men who ever lived, yet he talked with God face to face. He wrote more of the Bible than any other person, yet this great prophet, leader and hero was a polygamist. 65. The life of Moses may be divided into three 40-year periods. 1. His 40 years in the palatial kingdom of Pharaoh, where he stood in line as heir to the mightiest throne on earth. 2. His 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd among the Midianites, where he experienced many vicissitudes and trials during his preparation period for the work that God had for him to do. And 3. His 40-year call to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. Through the power and miracles of God, he led the house of Israel from bondage to freedom and gave them the laws and commandments of God. This interesting history of the children of Israel was revealed to Abraham centuries before it happened. The Lord told Abraham that in Tash, thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they shall serve, will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. Genesis 15 13-14 Moses was born at a time when a new king arose in Egypt who had little appreciation for the Israelites. In fact, he feared that they would become more and mightier than the Egyptians, so he ordered all the male children to be destroyed. The mother of Moses was more successful in preserving her infant son from Pharaoh's death warrant than most Israelite mothers. For three months she hid her son in the house, but when it became too dangerous, she hid him among the rushes in a small boat or basket near one of the canals of Benil. When, 66, an Egyptian princess came down to bathe, she saw the basket with the child and was determined to raise him herself. It was recommended that one of the Israelite mothers should nurse it, who turned out to be the real mother of Moses. Although the child Moses was raised by the princess, he was nurtured and taught by his mother. Of the life of Moses as a child, we know only that as an adopted son of this princess, he became learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, Acts 7.22. Of the princess, we know only that she was the daughter of Pharaoh, but it is interesting to discover that the Pharaohs had harems in several parts of Egypt. This princess, Pharaoh's daughter, probably inhabited just such a harem in the East Delta, where the Hebrews also were. Zoned Irvin's Encyclopedia of the Bible, 4, 744. So the foster mother of Moses, who saved his life and gave him such a great education, was a polygamous child herself. The second stage of Moses' life began when he was 40 years old. He saw the sufferings of his people under the hands of the Egyptians and became determined to help them, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Heb. 
11.25, when he saw an Egyptian taskmaster's cruelty upon the Israelites, he slew the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Apparently Moses was already aware of his life's mission as a leader to the Israelites, because we read that he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Acts 7.25, Moses understood his mission, but the Israelites didn't end dash 67, showing themselves unfit to be led into freedom. He was compelled to leave Egypt and wait 40 years for a different generation. If Moses would have renounced the teachings of his mother and the Israelites, he would probably have become Pharaoh of Egypt, the greatest nation on earth at that time. But he accepted the loss journeying alone into the wilderness of Midian. This gave him familiarity with the land over which he would someday lead the children of Israel, and through the hardship, he would develop character and understanding, not possible in the luxury of a palace. In Midian, we find Moses near a well, where seven maidens had come for water, but were being driven away by some Bedouin herdsmen. The chivalry of Moses now came to the forefront as he drove the rascals away, becoming a hero to the maids. They took him to their father, Jethro, who rewarded him with the hand of his daughter, Zipporah. For 40 years Moses led a fairly uneventful life as a shepherd and family man. Comparatively nothing was written of his life in Midian. Then came his call to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. While tending his flocks of sheep on the desert, he came to the mountain of Harib, where he saw a bush burning with fire, and the bush was not consumed. It was then that God called to him saying, Bring forth my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. X. 3.10 When That's Exodus 3.10 When God appeared to Moses, he identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacobs, and dash two polygamists and the son of a polygamist. Then, 68, God told Moses to go relate this experience to the elders of Israel and that it came from the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Then he was to gather all the children of Israel together and tell them that he had received a message from the Lord God of your fathers. God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. X. 350. That's Exodus 3, verse 15. And just to make sure that they would not forget who he was, he added, This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. God, the creator of heaven and earth wants to be identified with these polygamists and is making a special effort to deliver all the descendants of these polygamists and to make them his chosen people. Moses left for Egypt and there performed miracles to convince the people of what the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob could do. His cane was turned to a snake, his hand turned leprous, and a river turned to blood. It was enough to convince the Israelites and Ash, but not Pharaoh. The Egyptians suffered from the plagues that followed, but not an Israelite was harmed. 
Two chapters later we read that God divided the waters of the sea for the descendants of Jacob to pass through, but the waters fell upon Pharaoh's army, probably the largest army of that time. This was the greatest miracle of all. Pharaoh did not want the Israelites to leave because of the immense loss of manpower and talent. It was these polygamists descendants that made Egypt great, and when they left, Egypt digressed into a backward country from which it has never recovered. 69. Moses became the hero of the Israelites, and for many reasons. Consider some of the qualities this man had as a military leader, a civil leader, poet and historian, and prophet. What? Real quick, um, just pausing it for a minute. If you want to find a really good documentary on the archaeological find of the dead uh, of the Red Sea crossing just type in Arud awakening that's a r o o d Arud awakening and uh, Michael Rood, <clears throat> excuse me in his playlist you can go down and and find it if you take a little time and uh you can find where he's made documentaries about the Red Sea crossing and like the archaeological evidence that's still at the bottom of the Red Sea, which is really interesting. Where um, I, I think they call it the the Gulf of Aqaba, but anyway, um, Pharaoh's <clears throat> Pharaoh's. Uh, chariot wheels are still down there as, long, as well as all of the chariots and uh, a bunch of other interesting artifacts and uh, at both ends of where the crossing happened there were pillars that Solomon had set up and on the Egyptian side they're cut down but on the Arabia side they're not they're still there and some other really cool things about that is the pillar of fire that they, they followed. You can actually see where rocks have melted into the sand as the sand became so hot that it turned to glass. And these rocks that didn't get destroyed in the pillar of fire, they actually sunk into the sand, which had been turned to glass. It's really cool. Anyway, I would suggest everybody take a look at that. And, you know, I've learned a lot from Michael Rood throughout the years. Um, I think he's pompous and arrogant, and he drives me a little bit nuts, but I still think he's all right. Just uh, in case you've never heard me before, or you haven't heard this, like we both worked for... Um, CFI out of Joplin, Missouri as truck drivers back in the late 90s. And he's quite a bit older than me, but we used to get in arguments uh, about religion. I was the LDS missionary truck driver that talked to God, talked about God to everyone. And he was, I don't know, Protestant or something. Anyway, and he would just, like, we'd just argue about points of the Bible all the time whenever we saw each other and like we would run into each other a lot in Laredo, Texas because we would go down there and we'd be stuck down there waiting for loads to come out of Mexico 
So nobody wanted to ever go to Laredo because it, it was annoying. You, you get down there, and if you were lucky, you were, you were able to get alone and get out of there within, like, 24 to 36 hours, sometimes 48 to 72 hours. You know, you'd just be stuck down there. And uh, But we used to run into each other at Joplin, Missouri, and in Taylor, Michigan, and Lancaster, Texas, and different places. They had, We had different terminals. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what ever happened to him until years later when I saw that he had started a ministry, which is really successful. And he brings up a ton of really good points. And he... I just, I'm really grateful for his ministry. He had a stroke a while back, and he's still recovering from that, but but it's still good. You should go check that stuff out. But um, Ron Wyatt's the one who actually found the Dead Sea Crossing, and he found a bunch of other stuff, too. Like, Michael Rood has covered a lot of stuff. I would really suggest people go take a look at it at that stuff. Anyway, we're going to learn more about uh, Moses now, and uh, we'll learn about his military leadership first, so here we go. One, military leadership. God wanted to liberate the Israelites out of Egypt, and to get Egypt out of the Israelites. The miracles through Moses were to give them this message from God. To accomplish this, Moses destroyed the armies of Egypt in the Red Sea. This was no small act of warfare since three million Israelites were afraid of the multitude of that tremendous army. The total destruction of that multitude was so miraculous and so effective that it caused great alarm among all the other nations. X. 1515-16 This was only one act of warfare and he went on to become a conquering soldier and military leader as much as any other man in Israel. We read of his march to Sinai and the march from Sinai to Kadesh. Then there was the conquest of the Transjordanic kingdoms, the two campaigns in which the great leaders of Sinandog were defeated. Then the disastrous battle at Hama. Through it all, he proved to be as victorious in battle as was Joshua. 2. Civil leadership Moses became great in his own time, both among friends and enemies, for it was written that the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. X. 11. 3. The magnitude of his leading millions of Israelites through every conceivable difficulty is a feat unparalleled in history. When they, 70, were in the desert, He was able to sustain them, through divine inspiration, by providing water, food, and necessities. His wisdom in organizing so many people, solving their problems and leading them for so many years is one of the notable events of the Bible. 3. Poet and historian Moses wrote many poetic sayings, poetic blessings, and war songs about the deliverance from Egypt and the greatness and weakness of Israel. Many blessings on the tribes, prayers, and psalms were also attributed to this great man. He 
His historical and scriptural writings consist of nearly half the entire Old Testament of the Bible. 4. Prophet, it has been written by historians that Moses is the first as he is the greatest example of the prophet in the Old Testament. Divine revelations to him were continuous, and it has been pointed out that he was led into a closer communion with the invisible world than was vouchsafed to any other in the Old Testament. Smith's Bible Dictionary, P. Actually, I did want to say something about that. He was a so, I keep hearing people say that you'll know what a prophet, or you'll know a prophet when he comes among you because he'll speak by the power and authority of the Holy Ghost. And I think to myself, well, Jesus spoke by the power and the authority of God, but relatively few recognized him when he came. And Joseph spoke by power and authority as well. But he was rejected by the masses. And then I think of Moses and how he stumbled and he stuttered. And it was so bad that he had to have Aaron speak for him. And if it wasn't for the miracles, maybe the Israelites wouldn't have even believed him, but they did. I think they were looking for somebody to save them. But if you heard Moses stumbling and stammering and stuttering along, would you accept him as a prophet? Like God chooses who he chooses. We don't get to decide who is a prophet of God based on how they speak. I've heard eloquent orators speak great things in God's name, and it doesn't mean that they were from God. You know, it's only by revelation that you can know who God's true servants are. I mean, John the Baptist... He was raised in the wilderness because his mother took him into the wilderness because of what, um, you know, the the killing of the every baby under two. Well, John was part of that, and she ran into the wilderness, and they went after Zachariah to find his baby, and he refused to give up the location of his wife and child and they killed him on the steps of the temple. So John grew up as an orphan raised in the wilderness on locusts and grasshoppers and honey dressed in camel's hairs And people thought he was a wild man, but he was a prophet of God. Jesus calls him one of the greatest prophets, or or the greatest prophet. I just think that 
if you're listening to somebody because they sound good and they're eloquent in their oration, that maybe that person is telling you a lot of truth, but it doesn't mean that they are a prophet. And we've got to, you know, be wary and test all spirits and all all messages and make sure that we understand the interpretation correctly, for one, even if it is a true prophet, but for two, to test everything that a so-called prophet says that we won't be led astray. Anyway, I just that was a thought that came to my mind as I was listening to this. And actually, it's been on my mind for a while. I just have been waiting to, for it to come up. So anyway, here we go. He was the man who spoke with God. No. That's numbers 12, 12 eight, 8. And had a personal relationship with God. X. 33, 21-23. 34, 5, 6. The Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. X. 33, 11. It is written that after Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, that the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. X. Exodus. 34, 35, this is what happened to Christ when he spoke to God. See Matt. Matthew. 17. 17, two, verse 2. 71, as previously mentioned, aside from Jesus, it has never been given to any man to be the agent of so many miraculous manifestations of divine power, some of which are in dash, the plagues in Egypt. Waters of Red Sea divided. Okay, so I have a daughter who is knocking on my door. Would you like to come in, daughter? What do you want? Okay. Um, I will talk to you later. Bye. So I locked myself in my bedroom and I'm actually laying on my bed right now and uh, when I tell them to leave me alone they don't listen <laughs> what go away oh my gosh I'm going to have to pause this for a minute and see what they want, but I'll be right back. It's just uh, pausing the recording, which I'll upload later, so. Okay, so since my daughter, my 13-year-old, and I got diagnosed with COVID, my other kids had to stay home, too. And the other day... um, About a week before we got diagnosed, my 16-year-old got diagnosed, so he's back in school. And my wife already had COVID, so she can go to work. So I'm home with my 13-year-old, my 
eight-year-old and my seven-year-old and my two-year-old. <laughs> so anyway, um, we're all hanging out at the house dealing with COVID. Anyway, but uh, yeah, they had to uh, tell me a thing, which I think it's kind of funny because we have old phones that we don't use anymore, and the daughters love to get on them so they can play all of their silly little kid games that they can play on the iPhone. And so they found a cord, and they wanted me to know about it. So that's why they had to interrupt me, even though I told them to leave me alone. But it is what it is, so... Anyway, all right, well, let's get back into this reading. Uh, sorry about the interruption. To the plagues in Egypt. Waters of Red Sea divided. Water made sweet at Mara. Quails sent for food in the wilderness. Manna supplied daily for 40 years. Water from the rock at Rephidim and Meribah. Manifestations at Sinai. God's voice from the mountain. Two sets of commandments written on stone. Moses' face shone like the sun. Miriam's leprosy and its removal. Korah and his rebels swallowed by the earth. Plagues at Tabira, Kadesh, and Pir. Aaron's broadbuds. People healed by brazen serpent. Israel guided 40 years by a supernatural cloud and pillar of light. Okay, so... God was with Moses all the time, but if we had every instant where God spoke to Moses, we wouldn't be able to contain it in volumes. Because remember, this happened over the course of... 40 or 50 years. So another thing, um, talking about the documentaries uh, that Michael Rood did on Ron Wyatt's discoveries, um, Ron Wyatt also found Mount Sinai, and the top of Mount Sinai is scorched black, but if you go up on Mount Sinai and you turn the rocks over, they're only scorched on the outside. If you, like, turn the rocks over, they're not scorched on the other side. So that's all interesting. And there's, like, a whole bunch of Paleo-Hebrew pictographs carved in the stones around Mount Sinai and other archaeological evidence. But... Um, the rock at Horeb, or the rock, the two rocks that he split, like, I don't know if we know where both of them are, but we do know where one of them is. And that rock is massive. And it is on top of, it's, it was a rock that was on top of, like, this hill. And there's no water gushing out of it today, but you can see where there was torrents, like, just barrels of water gushing out from underneath this rock that was split in two. And you can see the water erosion. It didn't just trickle water. It wasn't just like a little spring. Like when Moses smacked that rock, which by the way, he got in trouble for doing, 
but when he smacked that rock, um, the water just gushed out, and it continued for long enough for there to be a great deal of uh, water erosion out from underneath that rock. So um, there's videos of it, um, pictures of it on on uh, YouTube. Just go to A Rude Awakening um, on YouTube and, and find it, Michael Rude. And that's R-O-O-D. So anyway, but uh, you can find those documentaries in, in his playlist. He's got a lot of videos, though, so you do have to look for him. But uh, two of the ones that I really like that I suggest, it doesn't have anything to do with Moses, but the Ark of the Covenant has been found. Yeah, that is an awesome, awesome um, documentary. Also, um, Noah's Ark has been found. That's pretty interesting, too. Uh, The city of Sodom or Sodom and Gomorrah, they've been found. Um, But also, like, how the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies entered into Jeremiah's grotto, and the sand pneumatic system that that King Solomon got from uh, Bathsheba, and how that all works, that's pretty fascinating, too. So I really do suggest taking a look at all of that. Anyway, uh, continuing on with this reading. Christ is described somewhat obscurely by New Testament writers as the Moses of the New Dispensation, see Heb. Hebrews 3, 1-19, 12-24-29, and Acts 7.37, and the details of their lives are sometimes compared. See Acts 7.24-28-35, the greatness and spiritual prophetic call of Moses is clearly manifest throughout all the writings of the Bible. He was an example of a prophet with the power of God. Yet this man was a polygamist. Moses became a polygamist when he married a woman who was not an Israelite. His brother Aaron and his sister Miriam murmured against him for taking this foreigner as a wife. 72 And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Numbers chapter 12 12, verse 1 If you suppose that this might have been his wife, Zipporah, as some scholars acknowledge, but it was not. Zipporah was a Midianite woman. See Exodus chapter 2 verse 21. However, marriage to foreign women was not uncommon, nor was polygamy. Aaron and Miriam had no right to murmur against Moses for either his polygamy or his foreign wife. Just because Moses' new wife came from Ethiopia, did not necessarily mean she was of a colored or cursed race. Just the same as Abraham's wife, Hagar, was not from the black race just because she came from Egypt. See Genesis, Genesis 16, chapter 16 3. verse 3. This is an incident in which Moses must have been hurt deeply, as it was a personal attack by his own brother and sister. It is significant that Miriam is mentioned first. This 
and the fact that it was she who was punished indicates that she was the prime mover and the occasion was another woman. Who the woman was is unknown. That she was a Kushite Ethiopian indicates that she could not have been Zipporah. It was not long since Jethro had brought Zipporah back to Moses X. And it may be assumed that she and her sons remained with him. When a why Moses married this woman, whose name is not even mentioned, is not stated. It may be that Miriam resented it as an affront to Zippor. 73, I assumed great importance for Moses personally and especially for his influence as leader. Moses made no reply to his brother and sister. He did not need to. The Lord suddenly intervened and emphasized to these next of kin the unique position which their brother enjoyed. He then inflicted leprosy on Miriam and removed it only in answer to Moses' intercession in response to Aaron's agonized supplication. The fact that the Lord dealt so suddenly and severely and that Miriam was made such a public example made it a significant occurrence in the eyes of the people and turned it into a notable confirmation of the unique authority of Moses. Zoned Irvin's Encyclopedia of the Bible, 4, 292. There would be no reason for Miriam to speak against Moses' wife Zipporah at this late date, so Moses must have married the Ethiopian near the time of their rebellion. Even Zoned Irvin found it difficult to understand why Moses married this foreign girl. However, it was not uncommon for leaders of nations to give daughters to victors or to assure good intentions to keep peace between nations. Abraham and his great-grandson, Joseph, both married Egyptian women. Genesis 16, 3 and 41, 45. David married a wife from Jezreel, 2 and M. 3, 2. Solomon married foreign women, 1 Kings 11, 1. Esau married two Hittite women, Genesis 26, <coughs> and I have married a Phoenician, I Kings 16:31. These were often marriages arranged by kings or prominent leaders, and were for peaceful purposes, and they continue their goodwill. Oh, okay. Um, this other woman that Moses married, she could have been part of the mixed multitude. So it wasn't just Israelites that went out of Egypt. There were what were called the mixed multitude that knew that Moses was representing a powerful God and that they wanted to follow with the children of Israel. And they followed the Israelites out of Egypt. They went with them. And there were a lot of them. Um, I can't remember what they call them, but they're basically, they were basically just Gentile individuals that realized that there was power in the God of Israel, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so they followed and went with them, and I don't know where this Ethiopian Cushite woman came from, uh, as far as like who married Moses, but she may have been part of that mixed multitude. 
and we're not really given a whole lot of information about her. So I'll reserve, you know, my thoughts on that because I don't really have any. Um, and, well, I guess I could say one thing. Okay, so she was an Ethiopian woman, which probably means she was black. Well, I don't know if you know anything about ancient culture, but there's a lot of racism going on around in these cultures, right? Tribalism, basically. And Miriam and Aaron may have had a problem with that. You know, you're not supposed to leave your own tribe. You're not supposed to marry outside of the chosen people. Well... I can see how they would think that culturally. But then there was also a problem with the black skin as far as people would get upset about mis- mixing with, you know, dark dark skin colors like that. And I don't know what they thought as far as the race of Cain goes. I do know that in the book of Moses, which is a... Uh, is the inspired translation of the book of Genesis. We learn that that there were no Canaanites among um, the city of Enoch because they were black and had no place among them. Okay, well, just because they're black doesn't mean anything. Um, So there's different curses that different people get. And they're cursed to the third and fourth generation, and that can be a family curse as well. And then there is other curses as well, but um, so Cain was cursed because he he gave the offering he gave the offering uh, that Satan wanted him to give, and then he got all upset about it. Um, and he killed his brother, right? So there was a curse that came upon him and his descendants. Well, Ham, <clears throat> excuse me, the son of Noah married Egyptus, who was a Canaanite woman. Well, um, Ham and Egyptus had four sons. And there was a son by the name of Canaan who crept into the cave where um, Noah was sleeping. And Canaan slept with with Noah's wife. He uncovered Noah's nakedness, which is another way of saying he slept with his grandma. And Noah, in his drunkenness, because he had been drinking all this wine that he had been making, uh, you know, after the flood and all that, he cursed Canaan to be a servant of servants. That's in the book of Genesis. In the book of, I think it's Jasher, we find out 
and I'm not sure if it's in the book of Joshua or not, but I know I've read it. We find out that that Ham's three other sons that weren't Canaan, they like got the heck away from Canaan because they didn't want their children to be cursed with the same curse that Canaan and his children were cursed with. But they were black as well. They were the sons of Egyptus and Ham. So just because somebody has black skin doesn't mean that they have that great curse upon them. And I think that we need to stop worrying about the racism and, like, get revelation. You know, like, if God wants to give somebody some authority and set them apart, there are black Hebrew Israelites. They're not of the house of Cain. Now, I the black Hebrew Israelite thing, I probably shouldn't have said that because those guys are deceived beyond deception. Um... Their founder is the devil. They are only trying to cause discord and division. But just because somebody's black doesn't mean that you treat them badly. God loves all of his children and he doesn't care what their skin color is. Now, it's true that God only gave priesthood to the Levites at one point, and God chooses who he gives priesthood to even today. You should never give priesthood to anybody unless you have been given confirmation and revelation that they should receive it. But am I going to condemn Moses for marrying an Ethiopian woman who was most likely black? Absolutely not. These race issues, they drive me insane. I hate them. But I think that we need to get more revelation personally before we go off and say, well, Brigham Young said, or whoever said, you know, just because somebody says something doesn't mean it's true. Get revelation for yourself. And stop trying to impose your revelations upon other people. That's another thing that drives me nuts. Well, God told me that. Well, that's nice that God told you that. But that other individual that you're saying God told me that, they need to get revelation for themselves. And stop running down this this path of groupthink. I hate groupthink. Just because somebody else got talked to doesn't mean that you get talked to in the same way. And it doesn't mean that they what they had revealed to them is true. Stop it. Anyway, we're on page 74. Um, yeah, we'll just keep on going. We're at 82%. And uh, I'll just keep on going here. If I can get it to start. Moses not only lived marriage, but he gave more has regulations and conditions for lying plural marriage than anyone in the Bible. It is only reasonable that a man who was a lawgiver would practice the conditions of that law. It should be noticed that God paved the way for plural marriage both at the time of the birth of Moses and the birth of Christ when so many of the male children were killed by the nation's rulers. 
this would leave an excess of females in Israel, which were provided husbands through the law and polygamy. Moses knew about the coming Christ and the Gospel. Yet he lived and taught polygamy. Paul said that Moses accepted the call of God, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 26. 26. If Moses was a polygamist, and yet understood the riches of Christ, was he not showing that God did not disapprove of it? God told Moses that the promised Messiah, or Christ, would come who would be a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. 18, 18. Jesus understood that this was written about himself when he said, For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. John 5, 46. Peter also acknowledged this. See Acts 3.22, we must conclude that the polygamy laws of Moses were very much incorporated into the lifestyle of Christ and Dash certainly not with any recognized disfavor. Okay, I gotta say something about that last scripture reference. So, when Moroni first appeared to Joseph Smith, he gave him a list of scriptures. (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. He gave him a list of scriptures, and one of the scriptures that he gave him was Acts chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. And Moroni said that that man, and that scripture is referring to the man like unto Moses. So we know that Jesus Christ was a man like unto Moses, right? But Moroni said that the man of Acts chapter 2 or uh, chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, was Christ, not Jesus Christ, just Messiah, somebody who holds the office of a Messiah, but the day had not yet come when he would be rejected by his people. Which is interesting, because Jesus Christ, when Moroni went to Joseph Smith, Jesus Christ had been rejected by his people for 1,800 years at that point. This isn't speaking of Jesus Christ. It is speaking of Messiah ben Joseph, who is a Christ, who delivers you from the bondage of Babylon the Great as it falls. Cyrus was called a Christ by Jehovah in the book of Isaiah. Because Cyrus delivered Babylon, or delivered the Jews from Babylon. That's what a Messiah does. Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, delivers us from the bondage of death and hell. That's what a Messiah does. And if God anoints a Messiah, that's, that's what that means. Hamashiach in Hebrew, or Messiah in Aramaic. It means anointed of God. Cyrus is an anointed one of God. Jesus Christ was our Redeemer and Savior, and he was an anointed one of God. And I am an anointed one of God, too. That's why I have seen him face to face, and I knelt down before him, and he did put his hands on my head, and I am an anointed one of God. So when Moroni is telling you that the man of Acts chapter 2, or uh, 
Acts chapter 3, 22 and 23 is Christ, but the day had not yet come when he would be rejected by his people. And then Isaiah tells you in Isaiah chapter 49 that this other servant would be rejected by his people. Well, prophecy fulfilled. I'm glad you're listening, but most of the people, they just they just throw it out. They, they think, oh, he doesn't sound like... You know he's he doesn't he's not an eloquent orator, and whatever else they can say against me, you know. But I don't know what to tell you, people. I I just wish you would repent. And uh, and it's sad though because um, in Acts chapter three twenty ugh, twenty-two and twenty-three. It says, all they who will not hear the words of that prophet will be destroyed from among the people. And the reason for that is because when that prophet comes, who I am, he's trying to prepare the people to redeem Zion and gather them so that when everything falls apart, we can go to where God has prepared since the beginning of the foundation of this earth. I mean, it's there. It's ready for us. It's already it's already there. Where we can we can be as everything falls apart down around us. You know, and God will be with us in that place, but you've got to gather before that happens or I don't even know. I don't even know what to tell you people. The reason why they, those who will not listen to him will be destroyed from among the people isn't because he's going to destroy them. It's going to be because it will be because they are destroyed by Babylon the Great as it falls. And those are the consequences of your actions. You know, don't know what to tell you about that. All I know is what I've been told. All I know is I've been told to gather people here, and nobody comes. So. I guess we'll see what happens, but ah, I can wait to see what happens. I don't I don't want to rush into anything, but I'm not in control of this timetable. Anyway, we're at ninety percent. So uh we'll probably finish this up pretty quick, but I think doing it this way actually is quicker than the way I was doing it before because I was using up two hours before and we're only at an hour at this point or not quite an hour but um, I don't know let's just continue on here Paul said it was relates rolled up ties unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual 75 rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Actually, one call. I gotta say something about that too. Did you know that there were two arcs? There was an arc that went before the people, that the people followed, and there was an arc that went behind the people that the people were followed by. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and there was two rocks as well. There was a rock that followed them, like as strange as that sounds. And there was a rock that led them, as strange as that sounds. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 2 and, uh, 2 and 3, it actually talks about that rock. 
or at least one of them, and they're representations. So Jesus Christ is the rock of Judah, and Messiah ben Joseph is the rock of Joseph. And the stone and shepherd of Joseph, and it's talked about in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is giving his blessing to his son Joseph, it talks about the the rock and stem of Joseph, or the rock, the rock and shepherd of Joseph. It, that's talking about Messiah ben Joseph, but because people don't understand Messiah ben Joseph and they only understand Messiah ben Judah, which is Jesus then everybody wants to say, oh, it's all about Jesus all the time. But sometimes God speaks by the mouth of two or three witnesses, not just one. So anyway, let's see here. Okay. If Moses believed in that same spiritual rock that the Christians were to believe in, then Christ was not offended at their plural marriage system. If Moses was saved by the same gospel that Paul and Peter and Jesus were preaching, it is conclusive evidence that he was saved in the kingdom of heaven in spite of his polygamy. His polygamy did not prohibit him from attending the transfiguration of Christ, an event not even all of his apostles were privileged to witness. When Jesus was transfigured on a high mountain, Moses appeared to him and three apostles. Matthew chapter 17, verse 3. 17, 3. This should convince us that the polygamy of Moses, or the laws pertaining to polygamy that Moses wrote, were not offensive to God or Christ. Okay, I have to pause. The final and most compliment. I have a two-year-old at my door who wants his daddy. So, hold on. I'm going to pause it real quick. Okay, the two-year-old had to tell me about his monster truck, so that's important stuff. Anyway, we're almost done. We're at 96%. The final and most complimentary tribute paid to Moses was given in Deuteronomy. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, in all the signs and the wonders, which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and in all that mighty hand, and in all the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of all Israel, Jude. Deuteronomy 34, 10-12 Both God and man paid high tribute to this polygamist. Therefore, we have no reason to cast any aspersions upon this man, either for his plural marriage or the laws he gave concerning plural marriage. 76, chapter 9, the law of Moses. Okay, well, that is the end of that reading. Let me just... Probably shouldn't do that while I'm recording, but... When we come back on the next time, um, we'll get into chapter 9, and we'll talk about the law of Moses. And we'll focus on polygamy, because that's what this is about. And we'll get into the instructions that God gave concerning polygamy. And there are instructions. And if polygamy was an abomination, as some have misinterpreted, 
God would not have given instructions about polygamy. He would have just told them not to do it. But he never did. He never did. The only instructions where people are prohibited from living polygamy in a certain way, was it was called multiplying wives, and it was given to the, the kings of Israel that they should not multiply wives unto themselves, which David and Solomon did, and they were in hot, uh, I don't know what you call it, I, they were not supposed to do what they did. But just because they they multiplied wives doesn't mean that God was against polygamy. Or he wouldn't have given the instructions in the Torah or the Law of Moses about it. So there is a correct way to, to live polygamy and there is a correct way to live monogamy as well. And there is wrong ways to live it. And there's wrong ways to live monogamy as well. So, anyway. Well, I'll check the studio. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. And, uh, no, maybe I'll just give a quick preview on Chapter 9. I'll have to set that up real quick. But while I'm, uh, of course, I'll pause this recording, and then I'll start it with the, the preview. But if there are any questions, call in. This is a live show. I know I'm recording it, pre-recording it, but I'm still here, and I can still, you know, I will be live. I am live. We're here now. We're listening with you, and the studio is open. The phone lines are on. You can call in. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827, and we go live every Monday through Friday from 6 p.m. until we're finished, which is usually between 7 to 7.30, sometimes 8. Sometimes we go into overdrive, which we can do, all the way to 9 o'clock, but that's rare. That doesn't happen very often. But it can happen if we have people call in and people want to ask questions or just talk about theology. You know, you could even ask me about my own personal life and opinions. I'm not going to tell you where I live other than the fact that I live in Emory County and you should be here. (laughs) But let me get this preview ready. And then at the end of the preview, if we do not have any questions or comments, then I'll just be done with the program for today so okay I'm just going to read this I'm not going to have the reader program read it for the preview anyway now this chapter is long I don't know if we're going to be able to do it in one take we may have to cover this over two days I'm not sure but the law of Moses chapter 9 of polygamy in the bible 
goes from pages 76 to 100. And in the reader program, it's about twice as long as the other chapters. It's about 49 minutes long. So I will read the first page, maybe a little bit more than that. And then, like I said, if we have calls, if we have anybody questions or comments, you can call in now. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That is a Manhattan area code number in the United States of America. If you are an international listener, you can use Skype to call into this phone number and I will see that you are an international phone call person, and I will bring you on. And anybody else, if you're in the United States of America, well, like with the way things are with cell phones today, you can call in. It's like a local number. Everyone in the United States on most cell phone providers are local members, so, you know, whatever. All right, The Law of Moses, Chapter 9 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 76 to 100. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Yahshua, or Joshua, chapter 1, verse 7. Mosaic Law, Justice. A just weight is his delight. Proverbs, chapter 11, verse 1. Moses is known as the legislator or the lawgiver for the house of Israel. This is no small title or honor, for he was responsible for governing governing nearly 4 million people for 40 years. Furthermore, his laws have proved to be a system of jurisprudence that has been a foundational source of much of the world's civilization. At least the most civilized nations of the world honor the greatest portion of the law of Moses. Bible scholars and students agree to the unchangeable nature of those laws. Zondervan Publishing House makes this remarkable but valid statement. Moses had no successor. He was the lawgiver. And you know what? He was, but he got it from God, right? Because he was God's mouthpiece. Hold on here. And the law which was given through him was not to change with the generations of men. Zondervan's Encyclopedia of the Bible, chapter, or, yeah, no, volume 4, page 291. Spiritual laws like like mathematical or scientific laws simply do not change. God vindicates this by saying that he changes not. God cannot give laws which are constantly changing. There is a blessing or a result predicated upon every law, 
and men cannot achieve the same result or blessing by obedience to several different sets of laws. Alright, well, I guess I'm done with that for today, so thank you for listening, everyone. Take care. Okay, uh, let's see. Well, we've got my son Emmett on, or maybe it's my wife. I don't know. Kim, are you on, or is this? Okay, it's Emmett. Emmett, are you there? It is I, me. Falcor. <laughs> anyway, okay, well, um, nobody has called in, which. I doubly expect being Friday night. By the way, Shabbat Shalom, anyone who is listening live. It is Friday night and the sun has set. Um, so I did want to say a thing about yesterday's um, program. And it has to do with Section 132, which I believe was altered by Brigham Young but that there was a revelation that it was altered. But Section 132 contradicts Jacob Chapter 2, and I'll just read it for you. One of them says, and this is Doctrine and Covenant Section 132, verse 1, I, the Lord, justify my servants, David and Solomon, of their having many wives and concubines, And it goes on to say basically they did nothing wrong except for what they did with – or what David did with Uriah's wife Bathsheba and what he did with Uriah. But in Jacob chapter 2 verse 24, it says, Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which things was abominable before me, saith the Lord. So one of them justifies the polygamy of David and Solomon, and one of them condemns it. Now – both of them say, I, the Lord, you know, both of them are supposedly revelation from God, but they contradict one another. Um, yeah, they do. But the Book of Mormon actually aligns with Torah because, like I have said so many times in the past, multiplying of wives in the Torah was forbidden for kings They weren't supposed to multiply horses or wealth or a whole bunch of other things, but they did anyway. So they were breaking Torah law when they took all these wives and they did all these things, right? But just because they were breaking Torah law, multiplying wives, doesn't mean that there isn't also provision for polygamy in the Bible, which is also in the Torah law, which we're going to go over. Um, when we do the Law of Moses, which is the next program that we're going to cover in Polygamy in the Bible. And, uh, yeah, I just don't even know what to say to people who, like, it's like, you're welcome, Arius, go away. Okay, thanks. (laughs) You probably could hear him as a two-year-old. I was holding his monster truck, so... Anyway, um, but 
it seems to contradict and it does to a point it does. Um, but what I want to bring up from what we went over when we were dealing with the Nauvoo Expositor, I'm just going to read it again. Okay. I'm going to read this post. Actually, I just posted it in LDS last day's prophecy and gospel discussions. I believe Brigham altered the revelation known as Doctrine and Covenant section 132. Oh, by the way, this isn't the only one that I can see that he altered. And I'm not an expert these things. I can see it, though. But I know that there are those experts out there that know that there have been alterations, right? Um, but as I went through the Nauvoo Expositor on my podcast Fundamentally Mormon yesterday and the day before, William and Jane Law and others gave testimony of Hiram Smith reading this revelation to them and this newspaper, the Nauvoo Expositor, was published in April of 1844, which, by the way, is before the death of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. Which is weird when you keep saying the revelation was made up by Brigham after Joseph and Hiram died. The people who published the Nauvoo Expositor hated polygamy, among other things. But they wrote about how Hiram was sent to read them a revelation that sounded very much like Doctrine and Covenants, Section 132. How do you account for this? And then I put a clip of the Nauvoo Expositor, starting with the affidavits. I hereby certify that Hiram Smith, did in his office read to me a certain written document which he said was a revelation from God. He said that it was with Joseph. He was with Joseph when he received it, or when it was received. So Joseph received it in the presence of Hiram. He afterwards gave me the document to read. It took, And I took it to my house and I read it. I showed it to my wife and returned the next day. The revelation, so-called, authorized certain men to take more wives one at a time in this world and in the world to come. It said this was a law and a commandment. Joseph was to enter into the law and also that he should administer to others. Several other items were in the revelation supporting the above doctrines. William Law, State of Illinois. Hold on. Arius, get out of that. Go see mom. He's playing in my foot bath. His monster truck. Arius, go see mom now. Now, go. All right. Anyway, that was William Law, State of Illinois, Hancock County. I, Robert E. Foster, certified that the above certificate was sworn to before me as true in substance this fourth day of May, 1844. Well, that's weird. Huh. I thought that the Nauvoo Expositor was published in April of 1844. I'm going to have to go back and look at that. Uh, Lucy, get out of here. Anyway, but this was, you know, this was a sworn affidavit in May of 1844 before Joseph and Hiram died. And this was published before Joseph and Hiram were murdered. So 
I don't know. And these people had a problem with polygamy. They they thought it was an evil, horrible abomination, and they were trying to like root out the false prophet or try to get him to repent or something. I'm not even sure. But anyway, uh, Robert D. Foster, J.P., certify that I read the revelation referred to in the above affidavit of my husband. Oh, this is uh, – I think this is Jane Law. I certify that I read the revelation referred to in the above affidavit of my husband – Stained in strong terms the doctrine of having more wives than one at a time in this world and in the next. It authorized it authorized some to have to the number of ten and set forth that those women who would not allow their husbands to have more wives than one should be under condemnation before the Lord. Okay, that was Jane Law. And here is one of the reasons why I believe Brigham Young altered it, because Jane Law is testifying to the fact that in that revelation, God set the limit at ten wives. But when you go and you read Doctrine and Covenants section 132, it doesn't have that in it. Brigham altered the revelation. My wife doesn't have a phone on her right now, but she said, and if he did that, what else did he alter? He did a lot, and we're going to be surprised. I think you're going to be surprised when you get into heaven and all things are made known, and we're in the millennium, and all of this stuff is made known. You're going to find out Brigham did a lot of stuff he shouldn't have done. Anyway, um that was Jane Law, sworn and subscribed before me this fourth day of May, uh, A.D. 1844, uh, Robert D. Foster, J.P. I don't know what J.P. means, but that's who was saying, yeah, Jane Law said that this is what Hiram read to me and this is what it talks about. So so we can see there's a difference between Section 132 and the, and the revelation that Joseph Smith received and gave to Hiram to give to the the laws and they didn't want nothing to do with it so they were trying to out Joseph so why would they make this up because they were not polygamists they did not believe in polygamy they thought it was horrible that that Hiram actually had this revelation to give to them that Joseph Smith received where they could have up to, you know, a man could have up to 10 wives without being in condemnation. All right. Whom it may concern. For as much as the public mind hath been much agitated by the course of procedure of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by a number of persons declaring against certain doctrines and practices therein, among whom I am one, it is but meet that I should give my reasons, at least in part, as a cause that hath led me to declare myself in the letter of uh, summer 1843, the patriarch Hiram Smith did in high council, okay, so this is a year before, they're not testifying to it until like May of 1844, but he, this happened in the summer of 1843, where Hiram Smith did in the High Council, which 
of which I was a member, introduced what he said was a revelation given through the prophet that the said Hiram Smith did essay to read the said revelation in the said council that according to the reading there was contained the following doctrines. The sealing up of persons to eternal life. So that's um, your second second anointings, I believe, is what they're talking about, against all sin. Um, save that of the shedding of innocent blood of consenting thereto. Number two, the doctrine of the plurality of wives. Oh, and by the way, the reason why I don't get vaccinated, there's a lot of reasons, but consenting to the innocent blood, the they used stem cells from aborted babies to to come up with these uh, therapies or vaccinations. It tracks the fetuses. Kim, would you like to get on the phone and actually participate in the program? She's like sitting over on. Okay, well, do that. Kim is telling me that they track the fetuses that they use that were aborted for this, these things. Anyway, um, but I can't participate in the shifting of innocent blood, and I would rather die of COVID, which obviously isn't going to happen, than be partaker of these vaccines or any of these therapies. Um, it, the whole thing just makes me sick. Anyway, because I'm not going to, cons- I'm not going to stand by and, and watch this happen, and know about it, and then like boost the accounts of these corporations. And by the way, uh, I'm going to condemn the LDS Church because you know they have um, invested in these companies that have done these things. They've invested. They are part of consenting to the innocent blood. And you know what? If any of these men who are leaders of the church have had their second anointings and they consent to the innocent blood, they can burn in hell. Every single one of them. They've all been cut off as it is anyway. And uh, they're just... uh, there, there is no reforming those leaders. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're wolves, Babylonian businessmen. Uh, what's that place called? Bull Stearns, um, Wall Street. They're Wall Street lawyers. They're Wall, Wall Street wolves in uh, wolf suits or, or sheep's clothing. Like perfect prophecy fulfilled. It's exactly what they are. The second doctrine of the plurality of wives or marrying virgins, that David and Solomon had many wives, yet in this they sinned not, save in the matter of Uriah. Well, that's interesting. So... I don't know. It just contradicts section 132. 
I mean, it, it contradicts it contradicts Jacob chapter two and also Torah because David and Solomon have many wives. Like that's multiplying wives, and they were both kings. So I don't know. Anyway, uh, let's see here. That the aforesaid heresies were taught and practiced in the church determined me to leave the office of first counselor of the president of the church at Nauvoo, inasmuch as I dared not teach or administer such laws. And further, the potent saith not, Austin Cowley, state of Illinois, SS, Hancock County, to whom it may concern. I have certified that the above state cert, uh, above certificate was sworn and subscribed before me this fourth day of May, 1844. Robert D. Foster, J.P., the expositioner, Friday, June 7, 1844. Oh, and I guess that's when it was, maybe that's when it was uh, released. Um the Nauvoo Expositor on June 7th, 1844, was that there was published? I don't know. But but anyway, yeah, so we've got this controversy here, you know, and uh, I don't know what to think about it. I know Joseph Smith was a true prophet. I don't know where this revelation came from because it contradicts the, uh, the Book of Mormon, unless the Book of Mormon's been altered. And we know that it has. I have a book on my uh, shelf in front of me that has 3,900 alterations of the Book of Mormon. Um, so I don't know. Anyway, uh, and that was Gerald and Sandra Tanner's the ones that came up with that. Uh, hold on. Olivia, you keep walking past that baby with that loaded diaper. And you can see that it's loaded because I can see that it's loaded. You should pay attention to the baby. Thank you. Anyway. All right, well, Emma, did you have anything to say about anything? Or I know my wife does, but she won't get her phone, so I guess we're not going to hear from her tonight. <laughs> I don't have anything to say. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mom, do you have okay. your phone yet? No, she doesn't have her phone yet, and stop asking her. She's not even on the call. I hear Arius is making a bunch of noise. I think he's he's trying to run away from Olivia. Like, Uh no diaper! (laughs) Calvin and Hobbes over here. All right, well, I'm going to mute the mics, and I'll just end the program. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the program, and uh, I hope you have a blessed Shabbat. And I hope you have a wonderful Lord's Day, which is coming up on, uh, well, we do Friday to to Saturday night is Shabbat for us. And then uh, Saturday night to Sunday night is the Lord's Day, which is the Hebrew way of looking at things. So anyway, thank you for listening. Take care, everyone. God bless and goodbye. Thank you.